welcome to the Wolf Podcast. This is episode two, and once again, we are talking with J. David Osborne uh, of Broken River Books. He did he flashed some some offensive gain sign, but you guys can't see it. Um, <laughs> uh, we're talking about Count Zero by William Gibson, the kind of sequel to Neuromancer. I mean, it is a sequel, but it's not a uh, like a a sidequel. Not the same characters yeah. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, David, mm-hmm. how's it going? It's going good. We just, I feel like I just saw you for, well, I did see you for three days straight. And now we're <laughs> recording a podcast. Do I sound okay, by the way? Yeah, you end? sound good. Yeah. Okay. Um, but we just got done absolutely cleaning up at AWP, which was amazing. Um, oh, yeah. And now we're all settled in. We've all had one day of rest. and. Back to the podcast <laughs> grind, but I uh, I finished up Count Zero yesterday. I only had the last ten chapters to go, which it's interesting uh, the way that the book is balanced because because the first twenty six chapters or so are pretty decently long, and then the mm-hmm. last ten are incredibly short. So I only had on the audiobook I only had a like an hour and twenty minutes left to go, which flew by because I listened to everything on one point seven x speed. But uh, yeah, and so I just had the wrap up and obviously I didn't listen to any of it during AWP. So probably not the best way to read the book, <laughs> considering <laughs> how confusing everything gets. But I will say up top as a, as a frame for the rest of the conversation, I do think this is a huge improvement on Neuromancer. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was reading just a snippet from a review, like a contemporary review. And uh it said uh, this was from Dave Langford uh, reviewing this, like, I don't know, probably in, like, 1986. That this may not have the impact of Neuromancer's first window on Gibson's future, but it's a far better novel. And I think that that's true, too. Um, it's yeah. clearer without losing any of the sort of uh, wild, you know, mystical kind of a, what would you even call that? babble poetry? Uh-huh. <laughs> Technobabble poetry is a really good way of putting it. I would also say something like <clears throat> extreme close-up uh, sort of tactile immersion in the world, too. All the smells mm, yeah. and exact colors of things um, the leading to a sort of hyper-reality, dreamlike quality. Right. Um, and I wonder if, if that... So uh, an interesting thing about that, it was uh, serialized in Asimov's. Um, I don't know. I mean, that used to be much more common that novels would be serialized in like a major magazine before they came out. But I wonder if that gave it sort of like a, uh, you know, kind of a double editorial sweep, if you will. Like mm-hmm. the editors of of uh, Asimov were looking at it. His uh, editor at uh, her publishes book, um, Galance, you know, looked at it. So I wonder if that kind of helped clarify things. And especially since when you're serializing something, you know, uh, people can't just like read straight through. So if you have to wait a month for the next one, it's like, I feel like you, there's more pressure to be clear on exactly what's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. And I think that, I think that you could definitely see that in that every chapter does give you a bit of a frame of reference before it gets mm-hmm. started again. So you have three characters. You have uh, Turner, who is the hard-boiled assassin fixer 
type character who is uh there's not a whole lot to turner honestly uh he's he's sort of just uh a sex machine and a killing machine uh we can get into how much uh sex he has in the book at at another (laughs) point there's marley who is an art dealer who's been uh she got canceled basically she got gibson canceled for um selling a, a fake piece of art that I guess she didn't realize was, was fake. And then there's Bobby. There's Bobby the uh I was trying to do a Hank Hill impression there. Damn it, Bobby. <laughs> uh but Bobby is a extremely young wannabe uh sort of matrix hacker dude who opens the novel by immediately dying. Uh, yeah. basically somebody who knew knows who who bought a piece of technology and wants to test it to make sure that it won't kill you gives it to bobby first uh it just is as kind of like a guinea pig and he plugs yeah. in and immediately just <clears throat> and like throws up and dies but he's sort of magically saved uh by something in the matrix and his i really like the uh the bobby sections because i feel like somebody like bobby is us in gibson's world i mean he his i especially liked uh and this is something that i didn't realize i was ripping off for dying world because uh zuno's mom and dad are addicted to soap operas in in their (laughs) well not exactly but like tv shows and they ignore him and he turns into kind of this uh maladjusted freak because of it and and bobby's mom does exactly that like she is so deeply into these living soaps that she becomes a character in that she doesn't pay any attention to them which i think even in 1986 gibson was probably starting to notice that about the soap operas of his time and the screens of his time and how kids were being raised by parents who were constantly distracted and then you end up with bobby who's in this sort of berry town, which is a kind of slum area of the sprawl, who uh, is cavorting around with, isn't it like the goths and the, and the, the casuals, like this kind of outsiders <laughs> group of yeah. like goth kids. Um, yeah. The way like, I, I read Bobby is like, Bobby is basically someone who wishes he was case from the first novel. Um, yeah. But cause yeah. so Bobby is like 16 or 17, right? He's like pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't, he, he's supposed to go to school. He usually doesn't. He usually just is like fucking around on his deck. Um, yeah. And so like he, he wants to be like a super hacker. He even gave himself a badass name, Count Zero, which is partly where the, uh, the title of the book comes from. Um, I was kind of surprised when right away we met someone who calls himself Count Zero since Neuromancer, you don't meet until like, I don't know, the end of uh Neuromancer basically. The very end. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah but it's like you meet count zero and he's this like fucking kid who has like a completely different kind of narrative um even narrative voice turner's voice is kind of more like cases from the first book Mm -hmm. Um, he so it's kind of like if you split case into two characters they're turner and uh bobby it's like bobby's the whole uh cyber cowboy part except younger and like worse at it I know yeah. is, is like how I read it. He's just, I mean, he's just like a fucking kid. Um, and then Turner is like the badass stone cold killer part of case. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Bobby the, uh, never gets better. Bobby never becomes good. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, uh, <laughs> which is funny. So like, um, I mean, since you brought up the, uh, the, uh, the soap operas that they, they call them like Sim, Stim Sims. Sim, some, yeah. Sim, 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 yeah. Like Sims. Like yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, I'm just going to jump towards the end right away. Um, because so Bobby ends up with one of the other characters in the novel, Angie, uh, and she becomes a Simstim star, and and he is like her boyfriend slash bodyguard slash you know house husband basically, and so it's like he's gone on this wild ride, um, where he kind of realizes probably three fourths of the way through that like he's like damn I I don't want to I do not want this life like I don't want I thought I wanted to be someone like Case not that he knows who Case is, but uh, he's like I don't. That sucks. <laughs> you know, like that's mm-hmm, terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though he still brings his deck with him everywhere, because yeah. at the end it's mentioned like, man, this damn kid. We keep getting held up at customs because they keep finding more and more cyber matrix shit on his on his. And you're not supposed to have that, I guess. But yeah, no, I thought that uh, <clears throat> Bobby's a really interesting, just sort of wide-eyed. Uh, guinea pig protagonist because they do it to him again basically the way that the climax of the novel happens is they say hey you want to go in you want to go in and check this whole thing out and bobby's like yeah i do <laughs> <laughs> and then he just he goes there and the voodoo god baron samity like sort of takes over because he's he's entered into virix we could okay <clears throat> i do feel like the plot to count zero is a lot less confusing than I agree. Um, answer. But that doesn't mean that it's not confusing. Uh, it just means that it's less confusing than Neuromancer. So the first point of confusion for me, Turner is, again, he's a secret agent. He gets blown up at the beginning of the novel in India. And yeah. it's, a, it's, a point, it's a point that the book makes over and over again that it blows his dick off. Yeah. Uh, but he gets reconstructed. He gets fully, you know, his face gets reconstructed. His genitals get too. reconstructed. Yeah, he gets a he gets a new unit. And uh, which is which is another he, thing that circles back at the end. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So so, so he he has a son at the end that looks literally nothing like him, uh, yeah. or or the mom. So it's like the kid is meant to be you know taking off off of the biological dad, which is whoever whoever's dick that was before. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. That that was uh, funny. Um, so basically, he goes to Mexico to, and it's the kind of classic noir. You know, he meets a woman who's obviously there to keep an eye on him, but he's so um, driven by this new penis that he has that he <laughs> is just like in like he has sex with her. Then in middle midpoint through the novel, he goes to his brother's house and just straight up just has sex with his brother's wife, and it's it's like three three pages or whatever, and then he's he's banging her, and I was like, man, like whenever he finds Angie, who's like seventeen, and they're together, I'm like, don't don't you do it, don't you do it. There were, and there I, were he, times, there were times. So I, this is this is something that I kept having to remind myself, because uh, he would be like, damn. Angie looking good. Like he wouldn't say it like yeah. that, you know, but he, he, right. he, he wanted it. Um, yeah. And I kept having to remember, I was like, Turner's actually only like 22. Ah, right, right, so, right, right. When you're reading it, I kept being like, 
man, this like grizzled old noirish detective. And it's like, no, no, he's like 22. Was I? Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't realize that. Feel, I didn't realize yeah, he, that. Yeah. He feels, they mention it at some point, uh, maybe like halfway through the novel um, mm-hmm. that he's like you know, 22 or 23 or something like that. But like, he feels like an old kind of grizzled noirish narrator. Like, However, you, you can easily I, I read this and be like, he's like 40. Yeah, I, I will say Gibson was not at the time. And there is definitely like a dream time sex scene in there. And I was like, man, William Gibson was a horny guy. He was just yeah, he like, was. every, every woman who pops up, he's like, let's, uh, let's talk about her getting, getting naked, which I mean, I don't really fucking care, but it's, it's just it's kind there. of funny and interesting to me. Yeah. It's mid eighties. It's the mid eighties yeah. type shit. And he was like, um, he was, he was almost 40 when this book came out. Yeah. Yeah. So take from that what you will. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you old dog, you old dog. You. But, but so, okay. So Turner is hired to go on a mission with, by this guy. Um, Conway. His name or... wasn't Conway. Conroy. That's Conroy. it. Conroy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you'd call him Con <clears throat> to, Okay. Let me see if I got this right. He's going, there's a guy named Mitchell and Mitchell has figured something important out or help me out here. Cause he's supposed so, to kidnap um, Mitchell. Yeah. So they often talk about Microsoft, which is kind of funny because I think Microsoft had just become a company in the early eighties. It's just basically small software that you uh, can stick into yourself. Like he does it in the first chapter. He implants some Microsoft so he can know Spanish. Yeah. Um, but this guy, Mitchell, has developed something called Biosoft. So it's like a, uh, you know, some kind of biological way to interact with software. And so I can't remember, maybe it's never, maybe I just don't know how clear it was, but like, I think Mitchell was trying to, I think he developed it with one corporation. And was planning on selling it to the other corporation. If that's oh. not the case, that's what Conroy leads him to believe. Right. You know? Right. And Conroy's kind of like, we can scoop this guy up and, uh, you know, be rich, basically. Um, so he goes to do that. It goes terribly. This is, like, the point where I was most confused about. I was like, what the shit is going on? Um, like, the fight where he almost gets killed. Because he, like... Yeah. Everything goes sideways. He, like, flies out of there in a jet somehow. Yeah, he has uh, Mitchell's daughter, Angie, who's like passed out and is, you know, 16 or 17. And he flies a jet away from this like exploding place and goes to see his brother in like Kentucky mm-hmm. or Virginia, some, somewhere, some yeah. fucking where. Yeah, <laughs> Appalachia. Um, yeah, but so so this is this is the point where I was I was listening to it and I was just like, wait, what? What the fuck is going on? Because he yeah. it's like he goes to try to do this job. And to do this job, they introduce like 10 names that you don't know before. They're just like people who help him and they all die. And he flies a fucking jet out of this place. And then he's in Appalachia, like banging his brother's like girlfriend or wife or caretaker. It's kind of like, it's kind of like all three. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just like, man, what's going on and why? What's what's happening now? (laughs) Currently with this, we have Marley's story. She's in Paris, and she is has been tasked by this guy named Virick 
Now this seems to be in like virtual reality, basically. <clears throat> yeah, she beats him in virtual reality. This seems to be a theme through Neuromancer into Count Zero. Uh, Neuromancer with like Dixie Flatline, and then and also Winter Mutant. Like these these either people or AIs who have become godlike through uh, technology. And so Virik is a person who claims, at least at the beginning of the book, that he wants to be released from his virtual prison. Like he's he, his body is being kept alive because he's become so enormously wealthy that him dying would affect the world world's economy. Like how, how his he, money gets distributed. And the way I read it, I, he's like 100 years old or maybe older. He's like yeah. old as shit. So he's basically just you know, a meat bag attached to machines and his consciousness, his consciousness seems to be fine, but it's been like uploaded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he claims, you know, that he wants to get out of it by sending Marley on a mission to understand these little brown boxes that are full of trinkets. And that sort of makes sense by the end of it, I think. Yeah. Uh, sort of. But. <laughs> Sort of. So, like, she basically is looking for information. She links up with an old ex. Uh, he's immediately killed in noir fashion. Also, and that, that old ex is the guy who fucked her over at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. The one who I'm made pretty, her I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 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 I think so, too. Um, and then he's killed because I guess he either asks for too, money, too much money or um, there's something more sinister going on with it. But then, uh, yeah, like her, her whole story is basically trying to solve the mystery of what's in these boxes and what, what significance they have and what Virik is really up to through all of it. Yeah. Um, her narrative is most disconnected, I would say. Yeah, I would say so too. So it's like yeah. they, they all link up at a certain point, but hers is like the most far afield. For one thing, she's, mm-hmm. in a, she's on a different continent the whole book. Um, yeah, it's like Bobby and Turner's narratives kind of feel more like they're happening in parallel, and right. like, like it it would have been conceivable for them to interact earlier in the book had like something just gone slightly differently. Whereas Marley's in France, yeah, she's geographically isolated, and Turner and Bobby eventually do meet up. Um, the most important cast of characters in this that actually do matter are the Voodoo Boys. So in Cyberpunk 2077, I did a viral TikTok about this, which, by the way, never go viral on TikTok or always go viral on TikTok and just never (laughs) read the read the comments. Uh, Because for weeks now, uh, since I started, well, it's been about a week and every day my mentions are just blowing up with white dudes arguing with each other in the comments about who's better, William Gibson or Cyberpunk 2077. And I just see snippets of it. Um, and just never engage. But the, the lowest um, stakes arguments of all time, of all time, yeah, the, the <laughs> thing that matters the least in the entire world. <laughs> but uh, I was amazed at how many, how many things I was noticing through Neuromancer and especially Count Zero made their way into 2077. And so, mm-hmm. um, one of the the Voodoo Boys themselves are in um, are in Cyberpunk, right? So, sort of Haitian. Uh, voodoo practicing gangsters who also are heavy into cyberspace and that connection between like the loa and cyberspace is present in cyberpunk 2077 as well 
um, oh, which is, I think, I think, by the way, uh, there's also like the limousine that Lucas has is basically a character in 2077, but that's not what's interesting here. What I found to be the most interesting thing about Count Zero is the intrusion of the voodoo gods into cyberspace and how they sort of find a home in it. And the yeah. connection, like the, the idea that human beings through the matrix and through cyberspace are actually either sort of infringing on the territory of gods by doing that, or alternatively that the gods are using cyberspace as a way to get to people more easily. I thought that was really, because it mm. is yeah. in the book, it's not explained through techno babble or anything. It's Gibson is like yeah. straight up like, no, these are Loa who have, who have found a way to inhabit and control uh, and dominate cyberspace. Yeah. Which is so yeah, that that's one of the kind of, this is why I said like mystical earlier. Cause I would say neuromancer doesn't feel mystical. You know what I mean? No. There's, no. Whereas it, this feels, feels, it feels big. Yeah. Yeah. But this feels like, uh, like there's some straight up magic intertwining with, uh, tech, the techno babble, um, where, you know, at a certain extent. So, uh, we'll just jump back to who Angie Mitchell is. I don't know how important it is for us to recap the story. If you're reading it, if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, just go read the book, man. Not yeah. that long. It's pretty good. Or just listen and deal with the fact that we're going to tell you everything that happens mm-hmm. in kind of a, a funny way. So like Angie Mitchell, um, Mitchell's daughter, you find out that he implanted her with this Biosoft. The Biosoft allows her to interact with the Matrix without a deck. So she doesn't need any like uh doesn't need any like hardwired connection or anything like that. It's basically like if you could close your eyes and just Google something. That's that's what she's doing. Um but uh and that by itself is almost like a mystic, you know, like a seer mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. It's like there are millions of stories about that through history. So it's kind of interesting too that he chose a young woman because that's like often who seers were. In and burnt at the stake, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. she uh, find out like when kind of late that she's the one who saved Bobby at, at that initial point. Kind of, she like almost was like a force that like saved his life essentially. Which at the time when I was reading it, the first like when Bobby dies, I was like, ah, oh, is that Neuromancer from the first yeah, book? Like, saved you, yeah. Because it's almost described like the hand of God sort of like sweeping him away and like protecting him. Um, And so I at least had that in my head that it's like, you know, this godlike entity basically saved him. But then you find out later that it's her who has magic, I guess you could say cyber magic, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like and it's strong enough that it that it saved him from having his brain just like fucking completely fried. So I, I feel like the the trilogy has become at this point basically kind of fantasy. You know, it's yeah, like... yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that kind of uh, cyber mysticism was very popular in the eighties and going into the nineties. And there are still elements of it that are uh, alive and well today. I think that 
technology is so ubiquitous in our lives and so banal. You know, it's like it's TikTok yeah. and it's email, right. and we don't we don't think about how weird the idea of cyberspace actually is. And if you are a more mystically inclined person, which a lot of sci-fi writers uh, and counterculture people in general in the mid '80s were, you're naturally yeah. going to be like, "Yo, if there's this crazy space where we all connect, uh, there's probably going to be demons in it, right?" Yeah. And I I think some people still, I mean, there's Roko's Basilisk. Right, you've heard of Broco's Basilisk, right? It's it's um, the idea. It's, maybe it's it's like this thought experiment that uh, cyber mystics get into, where the idea is that if in the future there's a kind of neuromancer, right, like an all powerful, all seeing AI that can control all of humanity, uh, if mm -hmm. you uh, don't actively attempt to bring that into being. Then once that thing comes into being, it will punish you for your inaction in the past. So you better, you know, basically give your offerings to this thing and try to make an all-seeing, all-sentient AI a possibility so that you can be safe, apparently. But like, I do think that the 80s definitely had this kind of, um, you know, like disinfo, occult shit shot through with ideas of cyberspace. And I think that it was really cool for me to, to see it because I really like uh, like voodoo aesthetic stuff. Yeah. I think that Jackie is such a cool character because she has this like yeah. this wide brimmed hat with like keys dangling from it's like it's they look cool, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, whenever you're in cyberspace and you hear Baron Samity said, you know, you 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 killed my horse's rider or something like that. It's like oh. It's so Creepy. fucking cool. Yeah. Um, so what do you, so um, don't think it's ever actually clear what is happening with these voodoo gods, like where they, mm -hmm. and part of me, Neuromancer is never mentioned in the novel, but we are told that basically there are these super powerful AI that different corporations were, um, you know, developing or trying to develop. And they mentioned the, um, SCA Ashford or Ashpool mm -hmm. people again. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's like, are these just neuromancer? Are there, or like, are they some kind of other? Cause like, what if an AI came super powerful and like cognizant, but then kind of went like a little weird. It was just mm -hmm. like, ah, mm -hmm. I'm Baron, I'm Baron Samity. All right. What do you say to that? Because they're like these I, super powerful yeah. AI and it's happening in a techno sphere. Like they are essentially gods because they, it's like they, they both create and exist in the matrix. You could read it that way. I think you could certainly read it as sort of AI that has decided to adopt a persona or an AI that genuinely believes it is that God. The way I like to read it though, is that these in the world of, Count Zero and Neuromancer, these are mm -hmm. gods who are sort of moving into new territory. Uh, mm -hmm. And I do think that it is that direct connection to human life, the ability to manipulate entire human economies through, right. uh, which is basically what Samity does, right? Because he kills Viric at, at the end. <clears throat> um, the ability to really have this kind of influence over human beings, if you think about it, uh, in like an American gods type sense, if the gods are there That's and they're just they're waiting, of, yeah. 
uh, mm. they're waiting to kind of come back into prominence, they would see cyberspace, the matrix, and they would be like, oh, if I claim my territory there as fast as possible, right. I'll, I'll become a more powerful God. So I think what's really cool about the Gibson verse is that there are these AIs and now there are also like old gods that have entered into the matrix yeah. too. I like that reading of it. Partly, I think it meshes better actually with what the novel sets up because um, Virick early on, he talks about corporations as if they're like an organism, you know, and uh, he he's trying to, what he says is he's basically trying to push his corporation to the next state of evolution, which I mean, in essence is like basically making it God. And so yeah. it's like these old gods see him as like a direct rival I mean, mm-hmm. like in an American gods sort of way. And so, um, because kind of like, uh, connect this to sort of the plot stuff. Um, Mar, the things that Marley's doing end up being directly connected to the gods. It's like those, those MacGuffin boxes are mm-hmm. sort of made by them or something. something I think like so. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, they, that, they that's, what, them that's what lets them out. Yeah. That's what, when she opens it in cyberspace with, um, the guy, the random guy who she's in there with, the Australian dude. Um, I forgot about him. Yeah, they they all start spinning or like they're all magical totems, basically. Yeah, they're they're like little magic boxes. And it's like so, it's almost like they've laid a trap for Virik in that like they've laid these out there, and they there's something about them that is connected to the BioSoft too. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. It's like there's like a the reason they uh, Virik hires her is because because like uh, these these little boxes have like they're they're pieces of art too and mm-hmm. if I remember they have like some kind of pattern that is similar to something that has to do with BioSoft mm-hmm. so like Virik sees this as like something um I, <laughs> I don't I can't remember yeah it gets, it gets foggy yeah yeah and then yeah, so, like Virik is yeah, so Virik is chasing these things. He uses this art specialist, basically, who has seen one before to find them. Um, but they're sort of it's sort of like they're traps laid out by Baron Semity and some of the other gods to trap Virik specifically, and then they kill him. Mm-hmm. Like keep mm-hmm. to keep him from evolving into that next state of corporation, which seems to also have been like the Tessier Ashpool's corporation also seems to have been blocked from this like next state of evolution. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I like your reading of it better because I think it makes more internal sense. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there's, there's basically a, a, a kind of a, uh, e, how to, how to put it like a theocratic kind of like a, a theological kind of like war in heaven, but heaven is matrix. Yeah, which is really dark. It's extremely dark. <laughs> I, I, and, and the way that the plan comes together makes a kind of sense that I think it didn't quite in Neuromancer because you have yeah. Bobby and Jackie going into Virick's space and Bobby sort of having mm-hmm. that, um, you know, Turner kind of exists to bring Angie to Bobby, right? right. Yeah. Um, and then Bobby exists to get into the Matrix while being sort of skin ridden by one of these, by Samity, basically. By yeah, that's, that's what I forgot about that part. He's basically like possessed and yeah. he's sort of a, a Trojan horse in back into the matrix. 
Yeah, because he shows up or, and they're like, "Who's this fucking like this has this has got to be the biggest mistake ever." Like this loser broke into Virick's, you know, Matrix, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> uh, vision of vision of Madrid or wherever he is, Barcelona. And, it, and uh, it's like at the at the cusp of Virick like becoming a god too. It's like yep. um that that moment in uh Return of Jafar. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Right, right. As he's is that not a normal reference to make? <laughs> it's it's immediately what I thought of. I used to love that movie, uh, but it's like right as he gets what he most wants, and he's like trying to make himself into the most powerful thing in the world, which in the case of Return of Jafar shackles him to being a genie. But uh, mm-hmm. in this case, it's like he's about to take that net next step to become a god, and then Baron Samity uh, possesses Bobby and just like fucks it up yeah or saves up, which we saves humanity which we i don't know <laughs> yeah depending yeah. on how you look at it yeah depending exactly well ooh, i like that too that idea that the loa are maybe not trying to take over cyberspace but are trying to just keep cyberspace in check maybe it's kind of a they're noticing yeah. that cyberspace is impinging on people in a way that they don't like and so they launched this this mission this extremely complex mission to get in there because they can't get in um in order to stop them from being from like they call them in the books they call them zaibatsus which i think is a really cool word but like a a zaibatsu is basically a corporation that has taken on personhood which is also very prescient on gibson's point right it's it's these corporations that are now on the level of a person um right before citizens united yeah yeah but becoming you know closer and closer to godhood so again from a from a writing perspective from a clarity perspective i think that gibson is and i'll be interested to keep listening to this podcast because the last one i'm doing is mona lisa overdrive but you're going to keep going and i am interested once you get to books like the peripheral and yeah. uh, some of the more modern ones, uh, like pattern recognition and stuff like that, how how the writing style changes. I might read along for some of those because I'm curious to see if he gets more progressively as it goes along, more and more clear and less neuromancer jumbly. Yeah, I'm I'm slightly worried about that. Um, I I think peripheral might be like. <laughs> What's up, guess? It might be a point of like transition. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me just put me myself on mute while you while you talk. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I think peripheral might be a point of transition because, like, when you have a lot of these people who have really long careers where they write a bunch of books, um, and especially when their debut book becomes as gigantic as something like Neuromancer, you don't really hear. You don't always hear about their subsequent books. I feel like Neuromancer was so big that you know nothing was again going to be that big. But like the Blue Ant trilogy, which is after these ones, um, I had like never even heard of it until I googled them. Basically, you know, and it's like is part of that because uh, it's kind of like people people read Neuromancer and they're either a hard yes or a hard no. You know what I mean? And so it's like that was either not at all what they wanted. Or was everything they wanted, so they stuck with him for his whole career. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like the peripheral was the first one in a long time that kind of like, I guess you could say, broke through to be like, this is a book that everyone should read. 
Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's, and may, part of that might just be because like when a really famous 70 year old dude puts out a book, it's like, Oh, you got to read it. <laughs> you know, it might be his last one basically. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. And it was funny to me that the peripheral was what uh, ended up sort of breaking. Did you ever watch the show? Not to get too far ahead in your in your timeline. Um, I did not, partly because uh, I wanted to read. I like to read the books first, even though I my my actual theory is that you should read the book second because the book mm-hmm. will always ruin the show or movie for you. But mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not someone who cares about spoilers. So like me being spoiled on a plot mm-hmm. doesn't really matter. But um, it's like if you want a show to succeed in your own head, you got to give it the best chance it can against the book, which is usually to read it without knowing the book or watch yeah. it without knowing the book. I agree. But I agree with that. At this yeah, point, I've heard at this that, point, I'm yeah, until I'm done. Yeah, I've heard that they basically turn the book into just like a straight up, you know, very digestible action show, which makes sense. I mean, that's probably what they would do if they made a. Uh, you know, a sprawl trilogy series. I don't even know really how they would do it. They'd have to try to connect all the books together a bit more, I think, than Gibson does. Although I did like, I liked all the Easter eggs in this. Yeah. There's, there are mentions of, um, of Neuromancer, not directly, but just like yeah. of the events of Neuromancer. And yeah, like uh, you learn about the Teche Ash pools, which that happened like a decade before, and how they were like, you know, the biggest. Basically, what Burek is right now, which is like they shape the world economy, but uh, mm-hmm. they sort of collapsed. And the daughter who runs the corporation is like a, she's like a what do you call it? Uh, fuck, she 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 doesn't leave her house. She's mm-hmm. recluse. Mm-hmm. That's that's the fucking word. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. a recluse now. Um, yeah. So I like stuff. I agree. I like stuff like that. I uh, they mentioned. I the chick with the mirror shades too. They're like, yeah, and this this crazy woman who had, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a brief mention of her. Um, what was her name again? I can't. The case and what was the Molly. anyway? Mo- yeah, they mentioned Molly in in the like the uh, the voodoo guys do it, or maybe it's Jammer who's like talking about her or whatever. But there's a there's a mm. quick little Easter egg in there. Yeah, I remember um, reading something that this was more of a. Uh takes more takes place more in the sprawl and what i remember thinking about that and what i said at the end of the last show i was like i think this one's supposed to be more of like a hangout novel so you can kind of learn you know live in the sprawl and uh it is not (laughs) no 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 it's it's pretty it's paid i think what really helps gibson's writing in this is splitting it up into three um and and keeping basically it's three novellas that are squished together that do i i don't think that it's um you know, held together with glue and duct tape. I do think that at the end of it, it comes together in a satisfying way. But he, something that I think dragged Neuromancer down was just constantly being with Case through the whole thing. And and Case not really having the depth or being interesting enough to kind of carry an entire novel. And none of these characters can carry an entire novel either. But I think Bobby could. Maybe yeah, Bobby and the and the voodoo guys could be a whole like I would have loved to have just had it be a crime novel with with them. That might have really oh, worked. Man. If if they adapted this show, think of how cool it would be if it was just like a twelve part series that was just about Bobby and the voodoo boys, just like going around. Like so don't sick. even wor- 
just ignore the plot of this novel. Just like mm-hmm. set in the sprawl, have these fucking this fucking kid with these cool ass dudes and just mm-hmm. like doing stuff. Oh, that's oh, the other connection to uh Neuromancer is the Finn. The Finn's in it. He was uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of the only character who appears in both novels. And in the in basically in Count Zero, he's gone from a creepy little guy who uh does mods on people to a creepy little guy who lives in a apartment and never leaves and has stacks of paperbacks everywhere but apparently is still a badass because remember they go to the Finn place and there are like three ninjas that are just dead in his living room yeah <laughs> so yeah he's the, con- the he's, he, I'll bet you the Finn will be in Mona Lisa Overdrive too he'll probably be the character yeah, I think, that goes to all three um, I, I, th- I briefly looked at like a synopsis and it's I think Molly's in the next one too oh okay okay so she comes back that's cool I like when stuff like that i like these kind of loose trilogies that make reference to them i mean this book i said it on the neuromancer episode so i'll repeat it here but uh i this is the kind of exactly the kind of book that i would have uh touted as the best book of all time when i was 18 or 19 years old and it would have been the kind of book that i wanted to read because it forces you to have these kind of discussions to sort of parse out what you read um but you just kind of realize as you i um this is going to be totally out of left field and I don't want to go too far down into this digression, but I'm rereading blood Meridian for another podcast mm-hmm. this week. And I don't really like it that much. And it's just yeah. interesting how my, um, how my tastes are changing because when I first, re- I mean, God's fair, no better comes from blood Meridian. It's a, it's a quote yeah. from that book. Uh, so I think it's from the road. Ago, oh, you're right. It is from the road. You're so right. You're I, right. I, right. I was reading the road last year um, and I came across it and I was like, Hey, Hey, <laughs> look at this, what is this guy doing? I know. Um, and it's, it, it, that line comes from a, just some random, like old, almost blind dude that they meet at the side of the road. It's a, uh, it's yeah, kind of like the yeah. perfect person to take that line from. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. And so, um, so the way that this connects to our conversation is that it's exactly how I feel about Neuromancer and and Count Zero. And it's so interesting to be able to almost from a third person point of view, step back and say, wow, you know, this is something that I would have loved or in the case of Blood Meridian really did love. Um, But now I don't know. I have to revise what it is exactly that I'm looking for because it's not quite enough for me anymore to just be sort of bombarded by cool imagery. So, you know, in Blood Meridian now, when, oh, man, by the time you get to like chapter six and there's like babies nailed to bushes and stuff, you're just kind of like, man, I mean, and the kid hasn't really done anything in all six yeah. chapters. He's, he's just gone. Kind of a passenger one... for a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but the thing is, is that so is everybody else, right? They're really, mm, until yeah. you, until you get to the Glanton gang and whole, like the judge, that's why people like the judge, I think so much in this because he's like the center of gravity that the novel can finally find some sort of structure around. But those first, um, the judge shows up in chapter seven, but those first six chapters are just sort of like, well, he shows up in a way that where he's actually, I mean, he shows up earlier. You you know what I'm trying to say? He becomes Um, involved in the narrative at that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, It gives an anchor to what's going on in a way that isn't present in those first six chapters. And similarly, uh, Neuromancer in particular, not to keep dogging on that, 
but it's the same kind of thing, dude. You know, I mean, yeah. Count Zero has this as well, where it's like, this is all really fucking awesome imagery, but like, I just don't care about whatever's happening. And I do think that Bobby in particular in Count Zero is kind of the first time in these two novels that I cared about a character. I liked him and Jackie. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like he is the first real character. And part of it is because he, uh, we we were talking about this a little bit this weekend. I love idiot protagonists. I like to write idiot protagonists and I love to read idiot protagonists. Um, Mm -hmm. Severian from Gene Wolfe is an idiot protagonist. You know, he, he meets a dilemma and rather than like agonize over it, he's like, I'm just going to do this. And even if it was the wrong thing to do or like the absolute worst decisions, like he did it now, now we're, we're still moving forward. Um, Mm -hmm. it's interesting. So I read, tried to read Neuromancer for the first time when I was, I think 18 or 19. And I didn't like it because back then I was such a fucking language idiot. I like the science fiction part of it. I was like, ah, man, I love the way this is written, but what if it didn't have all this, this extra junk? And, uh, Mm -hmm. I loved blood Meridian back then too. Cause I think I read them probably within like a 12 month period, but even blood meridian it's kind of it's so what it is that you kind of don't read it the first time you read it it just is like yeah. it's so dense it's like trying to eat a mile of like ganache and uh you know it's like it's like, like oh that was a good bite but at a certain point you're just like i'm just eating a fucking mile of ganache you know <laughs> how far um, am i through this thing a quarter all right fuck okay here we go yeah and and uh so i reread slash read all of um, McCarthy last year. I wrote about it on the newsletter. But uh, Blood Meridian, my, my big joke that I tried to make um, was when I was writing a recap of like, you know, where you should start with uh, Rick McCarthy and kind of like encapsulating his whole career about which books you should read and which ones you shouldn't. I was going to leave Blood Meridian off entirely. Mm-hmm. I thought that that would be like the funniest joke, but I knew that people would not see the they would just probably like yell at me and be like you forgot the the best one and uh, mm-hmm. that was like mm-hmm. the point but so i did decide to include it at the ones you can skip because <clears throat> i do think it's actually one you can skip um and uh people got so mad about it <laughs> they got mad at you for saying that you could skip blood meridian yeah they're like like that's like the best american novel. i was like no it's not no it is <laughs> <laughs> And I think yeah. I think Harold Bloom kind of uh, actually ruined that book for the whole world um, mm-hmm. because Harold Bloom is the one who is he he called it like um, you know the 20th century's uh, Moby Dick basically yeah and it it kind of is um, but Moby Dick's better for a lot of mm-hmm. different reasons mm-hmm. um, and I think Cormac McCarthy what's really interesting about him as a writer is that he's really funny in Blood Meridian mm-hmm. there's nothing funny about it it's just like unrelentingly bleak and dark. Um, yeah. And Moby Dick is a really funny book. And I think that that is a little bit the problem for me with William Gibson now is like, mm. um, mm-hmm. he, and that's kind of the nice thing about Bobby is like, Bobby has this, Bobby himself is not funny, mm-hmm. but the like lack of self-awareness of Bobby adds this like interesting tilt of humor to it. Like mm-hmm. he thinks he's like a badass cyber cowboy Everyone's like, oh man, the first like real crime you tried to do, you fucking blew yourself up. You just blew yourself up. <laughs> I will be, oh, I'll be right back. Sorry, I need to go right. really quickly. All right, sorry about that. I um, <clears throat> that's right. I also 
I was think, I, I like what you said about Bobby being this sort of locus of humor. And I think that's important to for listeners who might be writers, because there is a direct one-to-one correlation between humor and character development and humanity. Uh, if your characters aren't funny at all, they're not going to read as human. And yeah. even if they do read as human, maybe human is the wrong way of looking at it because they're not going to read as interesting to people. They're going to be like, oh, God, we have another. Because I kind of felt that way with the Marley chapters sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's like they're very humorless and nothing really super interesting is going on with them. So I'd be like, okay, cool. We had a Turner they're chapter. Disconnected enough. Yeah, they're disconnected yeah. enough from the rest of the novel that, um, yeah, sometimes it's kind of like the thing that pulls you through those is meant to be like, how is this connected to the rest of the book? Which mm-hmm. is not great. You know, like yeah. it, I think, it, I think it works okay here. Um, because I think that Bobby, Bobby's narrative, I liked well enough. And Turner's narrative is sort of like, you know, balls to the wall, kind of good enough that it mm-hmm. like keeps hooking you because, He's he's like fighting ninjas and shit, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah um, or yeah. fucking somebody. Just, yeah, well, lots of that too. Also, <clears throat> on an unrelated point, something that I was thinking about while I was reading this. So, Neuromancer is forty years old this year, mm-hmm. and so this book is thirty-eight years old. It's older than me. Came out before I was born, probably. And I mentioned earlier in the podcast how I, in God's Fair No Better, I have a bit that's from Count Zero, even though I didn't know it was from Count Zero. And it really does make you start to wonder, as a writer, what's new under the sun? And there's not really much. There's not, we're mostly rehashing and remixing stuff at this point because these guys in the 80s, uh, not just Gibson, but Wolf and Le Guin and, you know, all these characters they sort of tap the well in a lot of respects, you know, like how do you, how do you outdo something like the book of the new sun in terms yeah. of th- thematically? Well, I think like, you know, I talk a lot about this with the literary genre and especially, you know, we were just at AWP where that's basically where people who are aspiring to get an MFA in an MFA or already have an MFA or teach at an MFA. Uh, that's where they congregate. Um, and those kind of people, um, are especially interested, I think, personally, in experimenting with language in a way that uh, they feel is interesting. And my response to this for almost 10 years now has been like, basically everything you can do with language was done in a mix of these through three writers, like Joyce, William S. Burroughs, and Samuel Beckett. And I'm like tapped out how you can experiment with language and still make it uh, like uh, like uh, understandable, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you can mm-hmm. you can just like you can just string nonsense together, and it's like yeah, that that sure was uh, that sure was something, you know. But it's uh, you can't read it and like understand when people are just laying down broken piano teeth and being like, no, that's like a metaphor for this. It's like how would anyone know that? Yeah. So like along with that, what I found with a lot of literary novels over the last, um, I don't know, years or so. I kind of, I stopped reading literary books for a long time, but I still pick up ones that are like award-winning books sometimes. And uh, there's a lot of them that I 
have read that I feel, you know, they'll be like, oh, this is like a groundbreaking new voice and et cetera. And it's like such a creative book. I'll read it and I'll be like, have these people never read like Henry Miller? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like this book is doing Lady, Lady Chatterley's Lover just in 2020 instead of in 1920. It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. is is that actually something new? And yeah. no, I would say, you know, yeah. but I think yeah. that along with all of that is we are seeing that I think is kind of new in the last 10 years. And I think it's actually kind of come from things like anime uh, and music. So like you know, music genres have become so specific that they're borderline nonsense, but it's like, you know, uh, like Rage Against the Machine is rap plus metal. And there's a lot of that kind of genre mashing since then. And the reason I mentioned anime is like anime will include all of those things in the same series. Where it's like, this is science fiction, fantasy, romance, you know, like all, it's like five different genres in the same show. And it's kind of all of them all at the same time. And so it's like, you can't remake Book of the New Sun. But you can be like, well, what if, what what if I shoved Book of the New Sun into Totoro? Mm, and it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, damn, that's wild. Um, I mean, Iron Wolf is a little bit that. It's like, you know, what if characters from, uh, you know, Empire Hunter D found themselves in a Gene Wolf narrative? You know, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think what's so interesting about what you're saying too is that. It's all about what the <clears throat> locus of inspiration and culture is at the time. So the authors that you mentioned, like Joyce and Beckett and Burroughs, were all, if not pre-film, uh, at least it's still in the early days of film. So where film hadn't become the dominant cultural force that it was for a while, it's not anymore. I think it's video games and anime now. But um <clears throat> when language based media like books is all that there is you're more free to experiment with that in the same way mm-hmm. that films can get weirder after there's kind of a more of a, a basis for them not counting right. once, you know once you establish well and, like yeah it's like you establish baseline and then you can be once people are sort of a uh, grounded and mired in the for lack of a better word like tropes of the medium then you can start twisting and playing around Absolutely. And so I think that I think film reached that in the 70s through the 90s, right? The golden age of cinema. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it became formally perfected with the directors in the in the 70s. And then it got weird. And of course, there are still good movies the same way there are still good books. But then a new cultural form has to come into being. And I think that video games did that next. I think you really started to see video games move towards being the dominant form of cultural storytelling with games like Metal Gear and uh, Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy Seven in particular, yeah. um, and then Cyber from there, Wars. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then from there into anime, which I think we're having the anime moment right now that'll probably last for a good ten years, and we're going to see a ton of American anime derivative type stuff. But mm-hmm. from your own point of reference as a writer, you know, you are. I think it behooves you to understand what the cultural touch points are and to be working from that as a kind of translator for your own medium 
uh, you know, we talked to that, uh, that cool guy at, uh, he's the guy who, who recommended the Dresden files to me as, a you know, if you like anime and you want to see how that kind of pacing is done in books, it's the Dresden files. Uh, Kadeem, like, Kadeem Locke, I think was his name. Yes. Kadeem Locke was his name. Um, and Eddie and I looked at each other and we we're like, that guy's going to make it. That guy's, he's yes. got his head on his shoulders <laughs> correctly. Like he, he completely, cause he, I'm telling you, dude, five years for, it's not going to be 10 years. It might not even be five years. It might be more like two or three. Um, we're going to see so many anime derivative books because people are going to catch on to this that yeah. it's just a good idea to like, of course, go back and read the classics of books because as a writer, you, you should, I think, I feel like you maybe should read a Cormac McCarthy book, maybe not Blood Meridian, but a Cormac. You should, if you're writing mm -hmm. cyberpunk, you should read. William Gibson and Neil Stevenson. You should understand those things, but you should also yeah. realize that what you're building is not, you're not building off of the Sprawl trilogy. You're building off of Cyberpunk 2077, the video game, right? Because that's the dominant cultural touchstone of this particular moment. And books, I think, haven't been that for almost a hundred years. And it's smart to sort of, I don't know, reposition yourself as a, a, a sort of reinventor of these more visual media, visual and game mediums into books to do yeah. something new. And with also books themselves. you kind of pick up where, you know, uh, I like video games. I like video game stories, but I think most people, even people who don't really read books, but only play video games can recognize that a lot of uh, video game storytelling sucks ass. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and so it's like, they're, there are there's wide open spaces even within all this stuff and i think what you said is good advice it's like you don't, I don't know, you don't even necessarily have to read i think neuromancer or something like that but i think you do have to read some you need to read widely and you need to read deeply so mm -hmm. like i don't think you need to read like lord of the rings though you should because it's pretty good but i it's do think that you yeah. need if you're gonna read if you're gonna write fantasy you should do a cross section. Pick something from seventy years ago and read a Brandon Sanderson book. I don't care if you think it sucks ass and if you just hate Brandon Sanderson for some reason. That guy seems delightful. But uh read one of his books and understand that that dude sells a million copies of one single book per year. Which means he has like fifteen books out. He's probably making ten million book sales a year. Like if you sales, if you don't sell dollars. Books yeah, sales. Like, if you don't see that there's something to learn from that, I, go do something else. Like, yeah, and it's yeah, not, yeah. and it's not that you have to become a bestseller or like try to be the next Brandon Sanderson. But um, writing, you use a toolkit, just like if you were a mechanic or a plumber. And if 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 a plumber said, "Oh, I don't use wrenches because like you know those are pretty lame." Like, well, what, what the fuck do you use? <laughs> like, how do you, I need, I need this fix. Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah, it would be super badass if I watched a plumber with his bare hands, you know, do something that I thought only a wrench could do. But it's like, you, know, you could have saved yourself so much work by just using a wrench. Yeah. Just use a wrench, bro. Like you're watching it and his yeah. hands are bleeding <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, dude, don't do this to yourself. Stop. Like, He's like, no, I got I, it. I use my teeth now. You're like, don't use yeah. your freaking teeth, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's what a lot of writers do. They're like, I'm gonna do this with my hands, 
or with my teeth. Yeah. And you're like, use a fucking wrench, dude. Yeah, and it it baffles. I mean, I, I guess I understand because when I was 20, I was like, uh, there's no way I'm going to read commercial fiction. Um, and there's a reason that you think that when you're 20 and you don't read it, you don't think it when you're 15 and you don't think it when you're 30. You think it when you're 20 because 20 year olds are dumber than 15 year olds. And if you're oh, 20, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you used to be smarter and you will be smarter again. Right now you are the dumbest that you will ever be because yep. your confidence is through the roof and you think that you're learning a lot of stuff especially if you're in college and you're learning some big words so you'll talk real loud. Goddamn right. You'll be heard. If you know mm-hmm. that reference, uh, you're cool, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, you, you think these stupid things and then you get a little older or a little younger and you're like, and I just want to, I just want to read some like fucking vampires fighting. Yeah. And I want it to be really cool and I want to understand what's going on and I yeah. want to be, <laughs> I really like, I want to be hooked. And I I will say to talk about the Dresden files, I started reading the first one last night uh, as a palate cleanser for six chapters of Blood Meridian. And I zipped through like half the book in an hour and a half. (laughs) I just, and I'm not even listening to it. I'm reading it on on Kindle. And I just ripped through. I was like, this fucking whips ass. He's a, a private detective who's also a wizard. Why did I not find this earlier? Because I saw the cover and I was like, hmm. Oh, yeah, no. exactly. I don't know. Well, like, that. Uh, have you have you seen the show The Last Kingdom? No, it's on Netflix. It's it's, it's awesome. The show's really good. But um, sort of as a palate cleanser to Count Zero, I was uh, I was like, I'll finally read this book because I like the TV show, and the first book is so good. It's so good that mm-hmm. I uh, read the second book too. So like, on the way to AWP, I read the first book. Um, mm-hmm. And on the way back from AWP, I read most of the second book or like listened to it. You know, I finished it um, mm-hmm. like two hours ago and I was like, man, I can't, I need this third book now. And yeah, it's like, ten, it's like 12 books or something. And I've seen this TV show like twice. I know exactly mm-hmm. what's going to happen. And it's still that good that like, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. And it's, it's told, uh, this dude's a really good writer. He's like, you know, internationally bestseller bernard uh cornwall or cromwell i don't know he's Mm -hmm. got an english name he does english books um but the last kingdom is set in like 980 um bike no wait it's before that i can't remember time but uh king alfred is one of the characters alfred the great um he's the saxon dude who gets raised by norsemen after the viking invasion uh ivor the boneless is a character uh, the sons of ragnar lothbrook their their characters and it's just badass viking stuff and uh it is like Dude. the most masculine adrenal- adrenaline kind of a uh, book and they're just so good they're just amazing yeah i'm looking at them now yeah it says uh the 13th book came out warlord the warlord oh, yeah. sort of sort of kings war of the wolf the flame bear yeah no see this is the stuff that's just really fucking cool <laughs> <laughs> and like it so it's kind of interesting too because even in this like super commercial fiction uh it has a frame narrative he's writing about his life from the future so you know but this is like how normal postmodern storytelling is is that like no one no one reading this would be like oh it's like a postmodern novel but it is so is lord of the rings mm-hmm. for this reason they're mm-hmm. basically meta narratives um and so like you know that the narrator he's telling his own story to you and like he talks about you know the present tense how he has hired like poets who like sing songs about his great exploits 
So it's like he's not someone he tells you very quickly that he's not against self aggrandizement. And then he's mm-hmm. like, Let me tell you my story. And so it's like, you know that he's making himself a hero, but it's still you're just like, Man, I love this and I love this narrative voice. It's so good. I love it. I'm gonna read check all it out. thirteen probably in the next two months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just be like, damn it, I have to read a William Gibson book. Gotta find some way to put uh, it, this in. It is gonna be like that because I need to read um some other books and I was like, uh, what if I just read like two more of these? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know I know the exact that was my that was my poll yesterday with uh Blood Meridian and the Dresden Files where I was reading Blood Meridian and I was like looking over at my Kindle. I was listening to Blood Meridian <laughs> and I was like looking over at my Kindle, I was like, Man, I don't want to see what this detective wizard is up to. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I think that um what you said is very is very because like when I was in my twenties, I was also uh, very dumb in this kind of way, and you can see that in my in my output. You know, I was only releasing yeah. a kind of slim novella every two or three years for the entirety of my twenties, um, and I think it was because, and this might resonate for some listeners who are at this point of, of their life. There was a there was a pull between what I thought I was supposed to do as a writer. Mm-hmm. And what I actually wanted to do as a writer. And it took me writing, you know, Dying World, which was a book that, you know, the title was pitched to me by Cameron Pierce seven years ago. Uh, He didn't say it was supposed to be a cyberpunk book, but that there would be a deer headed guy. And uh, it finally took me being like, I'm going to do a book where I'm just trying to make the most badass thing I possibly can for the the floodgates to open and you start to find that you know you don't lose your voice by doing that your voice is your voice you so maybe it's good to be dumb in your 20s honestly maybe maybe people maybe people in their 20s shouldn't maybe if there's a like the best advice for being in your 20s is to write a lot but don't think of it as being a part of your catalog you're just kind of working shit out i think it's kind of i mean me and we've talked about this before how we feel like we were published too young and kind of like uh you got you got a lot of really good attention and uh i got some good attention but i think that it hurt both of us in the long run because yeah it sort of set us on a path that we thought was the right one and it was uh what took us to where we are now which i think is like in the last few years we've kind of actually found the right path um yeah 15 years later literally 15 years later (laughs) Damn. Yeah, because how old was how old was I in twenty twelve? That was when. So mine was 20, 2010, So fourteen years ago for me. Yeah. So I was um, I was twenty four when my first book came out, and uh, mm-hmm. people, I knew people who were like at college professors and like, oh yeah, I taught your book this semester, and I was like, I am so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. No, dude. Dude, that was the same thing. The same thing. Like, oh man, I'm really. All those reviews that came out, and they call you yeah. things like a bold new voice, and you yeah. know the the best writers. That should have been my sign when I kept seeing like this guy is a writer's writer. Of course, when you're dumb and you're 25, you're like hell yeah, I am the writer's writer. But from a 37 yeah. year old perspective, if I saw somebody else getting those accolades, I'd be like, yo, be careful. You don't want to be a writer's yeah. writer. You yeah. you want to be a reader's and, writer. Yeah, it, that is yeah, because like. 
And the, the funny thing is that when you transition from a writer's writer to a reader's writer, all the people who liked you are going to hate you now. And so it's going to feel like your whole world is like your whole career is crumbling. But what you need to remember is that uh, there's way fewer writers than there are readers. Yeah. And so it's like if you might have 200 people being like, man, your new book sucks ass. Uh, but it's like, you know, but like there are a million people who are going to be like, I've been waiting for a book just like this. Um, and I think that, I mean, this is kind of the funny thing about being at AWP, which is like all these MFA type people. So many of them wanted, when they came to our table, they're like, oh man, this is what I've been looking for. And it's like, these are people who will probably tell you on like their Tinder bio, like they only read like James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and like queer poetry from the 1970s. Then when you like put a few books in front of them, they're like, and that uh, that cyberpunk vampire hunting sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, oh, like the, what was funniest to me was where AWP and Grant Cannibal books, Extreme God's Horror. Leftovers, was gone in like five minutes. People came yeah. by and they were like, oh, Extreme Horror Cannibal? Yeah, that's what I want to read. I'll pick that up. Yeah. And then, you know, Kelby's Mercy sold out. All my books sold out. You just brought a, brought a lot of books, but you sold pretty much exactly the same as, as the yeah, rest. I, well, I, I, mean, I sold, I think I sold 98 books. Yeah. So I you sold, sold more. A lot of books. Yeah. You sold more. You just had everybody. more books. Uh, I think if, yeah, you just I think if, had uh, stock. I think if you guys had had more books, cause like, you know, you ran out of your stock and I, I just happened to have some of your old dying worlds and right. those sold out too. So it's like, had you, had you brought uh, 50 books instead of 30, I think you would have sold out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but the point of it all is just that, like, it's what everybody really actually wants. They just want cool yeah. shit, right? And yeah. I think Count Zero is cool. I think that it is, if you're kind of somebody who's on the line, who's on the fence with what we're talking about, where you're more of a language-based person and you want a gateway drug into cool stuff, so far, Neuromancer and Count Zero, I think, would be good recommendations for you to check out. That's a really good way to put it because they are, man, he, the dude knows how to write a fucking sentence. And his first chapters, sure his first chapters are so good for both books. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> the first chapter of this book is like, uh, there's a lot of power fantasy at play, I think, but like, man, mm-hmm. it's still so good. Like you go from a guy blowing himself up or someone blowing him up into like literal pieces to him describing uh, eating a girl out as like raising uh, a chalice to his lips, which is so funny. And then Mm -hmm. at the end of it, he finds out that, you know, this whole idyllic little vacation was like planned by a giant corporation to get him back into the field. And it's like, (laughs) and man, that's so good. And the language is so good the whole time. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The descriptions of this kind of crumbling, but, beautiful mexican seaside town yeah uh is great like there's a also like there's a line where they're describing uh the temperature of a of a cooling jet i think as though somebody had just put their hand on it or something and you could still feel the mm. body heat up like damn that's fire yeah there was really there was a line that stuck in my head so much that uh it's now going to it's a novel idea but he describes yeah, when they're flying that jet away, uh, Angie and um, Turner, he describes, or no, they're they're uh, the hovercraft. They're driving the hovercraft like, through the landscape, and he describes it as like a wall of sound behind her, 
but like and that's not that novel of an idea but like something about the way he described it i felt it so like tactilely like this is like a literal wall of like vibrating atoms of sound uh yeah it just it stuck in my head so perfectly that uh dude dude knows how to write sentences and that he writes science fiction it's kind of like gene wolf it's like both of them could have written straight up literary like postmodern experimental novels and been and had they'd be known as like dude these guys are fucking good at this thing but instead they wrote science fiction and, and they expanded they, yeah they kind of you know you might not like gene wolf or these uh these books neuromancer and count zero but that you can kind of feel them elbowing out the sides of the genre to like make more room for different kinds of writers and that's cool even if you don't really like the uh, the product itself. Absolutely. Four stars. I think we... <laughs> yeah, I guess so, yeah. I, uh, I'd probably put it at four stars, yeah. Um, okay. I like it more than Neuromancer. I think you, you can kind of feel the progression of it. Like, Neuromancer was basically if Turner was the only perspective, mm-hmm. and this is, like, him kind of stretching a little bit to add some kind of a... a a very particular kind of humor. There's no jokes in it, but like, it's kind of a joke. The character is almost kind of like a, 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 a comic relief in, in very subtle and slight ways. So I'm very curious where Mona Lisa Overdrive goes because I'm, I'm hoping it kind of continues to flex and stretch. Me too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, uh, that is that for today and uh, I'll put a bunch of show notes in the uh, show notes. <laughs> and uh the, the next one we're doing mona lisa overdrive and that will hopefully be in like the middle of march or it'll be uh some other time <laughs> as i start to uh get used to doing this all right i will uh leave it there cool bye thanks everybody <laughs>